Awesome. Yeah. So my name is Billy Glosson. And again, it's a joy to be with you guys together with you. And I'm not going to repeat everything that was just said, but I'm in Morganton, North Carolina, which is in the foothills. And so that's where we've been. We moved last year. We've taken some time to get our feet under us. We did Leaders Collective. And now we're kind of in a season of gathering and we're looking to launch early next year. And so God's been really kind to us as we've gathered and as we've kind of come back home and as we've continued to just seek uh, what he would have us do in Burke County in Morganton, North Carolina. So when Chris invited me, I was excited because usually when I get invited places to preach, they're in the middle of a sermon series. And so it's kind of like, hey, you know, we're in judges and can you preach on this like list of names? I joke, but seriously, I preached at a church um, a couple weeks ago and they were in Joshua and they gave me a passage about the cities of refuge. And so it was like a bunch of, you know, cities. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's see what we do here. So when he said, you know, hey, man, you get to preach whatever you want. I was like, all right, buckle up because we're doing this. So for me, I'm really excited. So we're going to be in John chapter 21. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture because it's really unusual And it's really unique what God is up to in this interaction between Jesus and Peter that seems kind of odd. So if you would, turn to John chapter 21. That's where we're going to camp out tonight. And I'm going to make you do something a little different. If you would, stand with me as I read from God's Word. I know you just got comfortable sitting down, but that's all right. You can stand up again. So John chapter 21, and we're going to read the first 19 verses. It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to, his, to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. All right, you guys can be seated. I'm going to pray real quick. God, we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to just sit before your word and see this incredible interaction between your servant Peter and our Savior Jesus. I pray tonight, God, that you would stir us, you would compel us, and you would help us to see Jesus over everything, that we would see the supremacy of Jesus, and that we would be floored and in awe of the goodness, the mercy, and the generosity that you have shown us in his name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in John 21, and we get this kind of weird interaction. Now, it's important that we understand the context of John 21, or it doesn't really make much sense. So what happens here is kind of unusual. In order to understand it, I kind of want to backtrack for a minute. So if you look back in Matthew 28, we have another account of the resurrection. We see the Marys, they're worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus says this to them in verse 10. He says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Here we get why the disciples, they're no longer in Jerusalem, but they're in Galilee, right? This is why they made that jump. And we see a little bit further down in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So we kind of get a picture here that, that Jesus had directed his disciples to go to Galilee, to go to a mountain specifically that he had directed them and to wait. And so the disciples are on a mountain in Galilee and they're waiting patiently on the Lord. But then something happens here, right? Peter gets a little impatient. And that's where we read in verse three, it says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm gonna go fishing, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever been so impatient that, uh, you know, you're kind of having to wait and you get a little bored. Maybe you do something you shouldn't have. Well, I definitely have. A few years ago, I was flying back from Missouri. So I went to a small Bible college in Missouri and was flying back home to North Carolina. And I didn't really fly a lot, you know, so I wasn't jaded and not prepared for what happens when you fly, which is that flights get canceled and delays happen. So for some reason, I was flying a budget airline, another great move. And I flew to uh, Newark, New Jersey to come back to North Carolina because that makes complete logical sense. So I flew to Newark, New Jersey, and I'm hanging out and I had a three hour layover that turned into a 12 hour delay. Now, let me give you some more, uh, you know, perspective here. This is 2007 right? So I had no smartphone. I had a really cool like phone that when you press the two buttons, it shot up. So I looked like I was in the matrix. I love that. I had a Dell laptop. So that was pretty sweet. But Wi-Fi was not free like it is now everywhere. So here I am again, not jaded by this experience. All I have is one book that I'm halfway through and a laptop. And I didn't know if I wanted to pay for Wi-Fi or not because it was like $14.95 to start for an hour. And then you had to pay more on top of it. So I didn't know what to do. So I start reading. 
I finished my book, and then I watched HGTV at my gate until I felt like my soul was dying. And so at that point, I'm like, all right, either I'm going to spend $14.95 on some Wi-Fi, or I'm going to go get some food. So I decided I would get food. And so I did what you do when you're in a giant airport with nothing to do. I people watched. And that was really entertaining for a while. But eventually, that got boring too. And so I didn't know what to do. So I started wandering around Newark International Airport looking for anything to do. Every store in an airport is kind of the same thing with just a different name. So after a while, that got boring. Finally, I find this empty section of a terminal. There's like one gate down at the end that's open. The rest of it is totally empty. And they have these walkways that move, you know, so that you can go somewhere really quick without running. And I think to myself, but I could run really fast on that. And so I like pull out my timer and like on my little awesome cell phone and I start timing myself and I take off running. I'm like, that was pretty good. Let's do it again. But this time when I got to the end of it, there's a guy standing there like this with a security shirt on going, son, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm late for a flight. I was like, just trying to, he knew I was full of it. And he called me out on it and said, listen, you can't do that. You can't just run on this by yourself. I probably looked insane, right? Just running around. But that's what happens when you're in a moment of desperation. So here I am doing that. And I kind of can't help but think back to this story when I read something like about Peter getting a little impatient. He's sitting there, he's waiting. And, and maybe you kind of get Peter's impatient. Peter's impatience, right? Maybe you just want to know what my runtime was. I don't remember. Sorry, it was a long time ago. But here we are, right? Peter's, he's, he's flustered with waiting. And he's always been known as a man of action. And so he goes to what he knows. And what he knows is And since Peter is a leader, he gets a contingency of disciples to go with him. And here they are, a group of seasoned fishermen. And they went out at night to catch some fish. And they catch nothing. And so what we're going to do this evening is we're going to zoom into this peculiar story at the end of the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, specifically between Jesus and Peter. And what we're going to see is this, that Jesus, Jesus is better than our best effort as he frees us from shame and calls us to follow him. He is better there's so much to see, and so I think what we should do is we should start by going back to our text and see what happens when Jesus shows up. So look back at verse 4 with me. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. We'll stop there. The first thing we see right off the bat is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I'd say he's probably a better fisherman than the disciples, right? They had labored all night, and through the fog, they hear a voice asking about their catch, right? This is kind of like if your car's broken down, and you're like working on it, and then your neighbor drives by, and is like, ha, huh, car's not working, huh? You're like, yeah, it's not. Thanks. Really appreciate the help. It's kind of like that moment. That's how I picture it. They're coming back discouraged. Again, these are seasoned fishermen, and then through the fog, they hear a voice catch anything? And to their credit, they fess up. No, they didn't. 
See, for us, I think when we look at this story, we have to understand the context. This is not your dad's fishing trip, okay? These are professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. They don't need some guy yelling out, telling them what to do. Yet, they listen, and they drop their nets on the other side of the boat, and it fills up with fish. See, right away, we see that Jesus is better. He's better than our best efforts. He is. There's a great lesson here for all of us who follow Jesus, and it's this. We can't do it on our own, right? Regardless of our best laid effort, I don't care how capable you are. I don't care how talented you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. You and I, we are unable to follow Jesus apart from his work in our lives. Catch this, right? You're not capable on your own. Else, why would we need Jesus, right? If you are fully capable and competent to live a healthy Christian life without the influence and guidance of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't need him. But we do. We're desperate for Jesus. All right, back to the story. So the net begins to fill. And as soon as it does, John knows it's Jesus. He knew that the stranger on the shore was the Lord. And when Peter, when he knows it, he knows it so much so that he dives into the sea to swim after him. And I wonder if the words of their teacher are still ringing in their head, right? In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. Listen, any effort to serve Jesus in our own strength is going to be about as effective as the disciples' fishing trip. It will be. In our own strength, we always, we always mess it up. We're really, really good at making instant gratification our ultimate goal. We are. We can be really great self-promoters. That's what Instagram is for. We can make much of ourselves. But when it comes to giving up our personal comfort for someone else's eternal good, we often fall short. Right? If you're, if you're thinking about this and you're like, I want to be, man, a good Christian. I want to be a godly wife. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good mom. You are going to fail over and over again in your own strength. If you look at that besetting sin, the thing that you just want to conquer, the thing that's overwhelming, if you think about that and you think, I can beat it just by trying harder, you will fail. You will. Listen, hear me. All the good that you do will be empty and short-lived apart from the effective power of Jesus Christ working in you and working through you. That's why this fishing story, the disciples' empty hall, it's so very encouraging. Because if we follow Christ, we don't need to rely on our own strength. He will provide exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. When it comes to you and your strength, here is the truth that you need to hear. Jesus is better. He is better in every way. And if you follow him, then you have him as your greatest possession. I just want to speak for a moment as a recovering self-promoter that's married to a, a recovering perfectionist. Stop trying so hard. Like, I, mean, I mean that. Stop trying so hard. Best case scenario, right? Best case scenario, you fail and it leads you to the reassuring voice of Jesus. Worst case scenario is that you have some kind of cheap victory and you convince people that you're awesome and that you have it all together. The pressure weighing on you is more than you can bear. The yoke is hard and the burden is heavy. That's why we need to hear this, that Jesus is better. He is better than our best efforts. So will we believe that truth tonight? Will we? So he's better than our best effort, but I think the thing that we also need to see is this. Jesus is better than our failure. Jesus is better than our failure. Right? There's a reason the disciples didn't catch any fish. They caught nothing so that Jesus' power could be demonstrated. 
They caught nothing so his power could be demonstrated. But I wonder if they realized that in the moment, right? I wonder if they were like, that's why we had a horrible night because you wanted to display your power, right? They, I'm sure they lacked that self-awareness. Maybe you're like the disciples right now. You don't feel like some kind of self-promoter that's trying to make, you know, you look like the perfect Christian on Instagram or you have it all together. You're the greatest mom in the world. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you just feel like a failure. You know, as we follow Jesus, there may be days, weeks, months, even years when it feels like we're just failing. You may be following Jesus this evening, doing everything he says, and yet you feel like everything is going wrong. Maybe worse yet, you don't even see the purpose in this obedience. It's been said this way, that Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. The sanctification of failure. Ouch! Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus is better. He is better. He is better than our failing. Our failures, what they do is they bring us face to face with the weaknesses and inadequacies that lie within us so that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. Right? We're not the, you know, we're not the good stuff that your mom brings out. We're the cheap plastic stuff that you don't want to, you don't care if it breaks, if the kids get ketchup all over it. You don't care about that. That's what we are. We're the cheap clay pots. It's in the breaking of these jars of clay in our failures that the riches of God start to shine out and are exposed for all to see. It's primarily our failure that creates in us a poverty of spirit that makes us fit vessels for the blessings of the kingdom of God. That's why God allows suffering that at moments can feel so incredibly overwhelming. Because he is producing in you, he's producing in me a peculiar glory that showcases to a watching world that Jesus is better. He is. We live out a really great tragedy when we won't even admit our failure. Right? Whether that's in our relationship to God, to one another, in our failure to surrender, whatever it is. When we won't admit that because failure brings us face to face with the reality about ourselves and the broken world that we live in. And we have to face that truth. We do. Jesus knew that his disciples hadn't caught any fish, right? It's not a surprise to him. He knew everything about them. And it's to their credit, that, right, that they admit that they had failed, that they had caught nothing. But look what happens when Jesus shows up. Look what happens. Empty nets are filled. As long as we put the spotlight on our failures and we wallow in self-defeat, we wallow in failure, we see it as nothing but meaningless, that's what's going to happen. But when we take the spotlight off and we see that Jesus is better, failure can be the most creative thing in your life. When we have the grace to admit failure, we can have the humility to see how God is using it, even it, our brokenness to reveal his glory. And sitting on the boat was someone who was really well acquainted with failure. There's someone who had failure on the forefront of the mind, and that's the Apostle Peter. Look back at our text, right? Look back, we'll look at verse seven. It says, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I love this. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast, which is proof that breakfast is the greatest of all meals. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now we get to see this interaction between Jesus and Peter. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep feed my sheep. The second thing that we see tonight is that Jesus frees us from shame. Jesus frees us from shame. We're going to see second, right, that he frees us from shame. No doubt running through Peter's mind when that net began to fill up was his first interaction with Jesus. Do you remember it? In Luke 5, we, we, we see the account. I know we just read a lot, but, but check this out. Luke 5, this is the first time Peter meets Jesus, right? He, Jesus, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the other partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had both their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Right? I imagine this story replaying in Peter's mind. And now, as soon as he hears this, he dives in. He swims to Jesus, his risen Lord, and he arrives on shore and there's Jesus with breakfast. They haul their huge catch to the shore. I say they, really Peter did. And here's a side note, just because I love Jesus so much. What does Jesus do? He says, hey, bring some of your fish. How amazing is that? Jesus honors our labor for him, knowing full well that it's only because of him that we've even been fruitful. That's so amazing. And now they're sitting around the fire, and Jesus turns the attention to Peter. All right, before we look at this interaction between Peter and Jesus, we've got to understand the context. Now listen, breakfast with Jesus sounds awesome, but this isn't quite the interaction it seems at first. We've got to rewind a bit. Right? If you remember, they're supposed to be in a mountain, uh, on a mountain in Galilee waiting for the Lord. But Peter decides that he's going to abandon his call to ministry, if you will, and go fishing. And there, there are reasons for that. 
right? We have to remember that Jesus had denied the Lord three times. And I think he feels inadequate. I think he feels guilty. I think he feels weak. He's also a man who didn't have a lot of patience. He had not yet, along with the apostles, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're doubtful of their own power, their own abilities to sustain a ministry. And he knew that he had failed so many times. I mean, this is the guy that like knocks it out of the park and is like, you are the son of God. And then like a couple sentences later, he says, get behind me, Satan. That's this guy. He's the guy who's like, I'm going to follow you to the grave, Jesus. And then a little bit later, he's like, I don't know that guy, right? This is Peter. And I think we miss the cultural context of what's happening here, right? There's, again, Peter, what is he doing? He goes back to what he knows. He goes fishing. He goes fishing. Again, this is not a leisure trip to pass the time. Fishing was an occupation. It was work, right? This isn't you saying, you know what? I've just had a hard day. I think I'm going to go back to work and do a little bit more work for fun, you know, because that's how I relax. If you do, we should talk later because you're probably a workaholic, right? That's not good. And Peter, he's going back to fishing, not for leisure, but for work. Christ has just risen from the grave, the one who called Peter to follow him, to fish for men, and Peter is doubting himself. He's ashamed, and he goes back to fishing. Pastor and author Tim Chester, he shares four characteristics of God that help us battle idolatry and what's come to be known as the four G's. It's four truths about God, that God is good, God is great, God is glorious, and God is gracious. These truths about God, what they do is they push against the idols of power, control, comfort, and approval. You see, shame is a really funny thing. When we feel shame, we typically run to what we know. We do. We go to the place that feels familiar. We go to the place that feels safe. Usually, we don't run to Jesus. Think about what you do when you experience shame. What happens when shame creeps up in your life? Right? Do you blame yourself? Do you start self-loathing? Do you start playing small? Man, you're right. This is my fault. I'm the worst. I messed up again. I'm so sorry. It's, it's on me. You're probably running to approval. Or maybe when you feel shame, you try to turn the feeling off, right? You binge watch Netflix. I know Stranger Things came out recently. I get it. You know, you binge watch Netflix for hours. You play video games for hours. You're like a child who's grabbing their favorite blanket. You're probably running to comfort. Or maybe that's, that's not you at all, right? You don't try to numb or turn the feeling off. You run entirely. You go somewhere to be alone. You're the one that always leaves in the fight. You want to isolate yourself. You want to hide. You're probably running to control. Again, or maybe none of that sounds like you. Maybe when you feel shame, you get defensive. It's not your fault. It's their fault. How could they say that about you? You scapegoat the feeling. You're probably running to power. Power control, comfort, approval. All of these are empty cisterns that we've drunk from. And here's Peter confronted once again with his failure. And he's staring into a fire. And he remembers that the last fire he set by is where he denied the Lord. And now here he is, sitting across from him again. Smoke is wafting through the disciples and Jesus locks eyes with him. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Note that Jesus doesn't address him as Peter. He doesn't call him the rock because 
Simon had failed to live up to that name. Jesus is facing, he's facing Simon with his own limitations so that he might entrust himself in a new way to his leadership. Simon on his own is always going to be Simon. He has no capacity to rise beyond that. But Simon trusting in Jesus is Peter the rock from whose witness and leadership the church is going to receive its earliest foundation. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And that question stings. Do you love me more than these? Undoubtedly, Peter looks around and sees the other disciples and remember his own words to Jesus. It's like a flashback scene in his head. In John 13, Peter said this. He said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In Matthew 26, we see this. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You can almost see the tears welling up in his eyes as he remembers his denial. The question stings even more because the word Jesus uses for love here is a love that is perfect. It's a love that's unconditional, sacrificial, and pure. And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word that Peter uses for love can be translated as affection or friendship. In other words, he can't bring himself to profess a full kind of love. He says, Lord, I have an affection for you, a brotherly love for you, but I can't say love, not after all my failures, not after all of my disgrace. And then the Lord charges him. He says, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. In other words, then serve me. Jesus then asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, he's asking Peter, Peter, Simon, do you truly love me? And Peter again responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, stating a brotherly friendship affection. He follows it again, tend my sheep. And finally, Jesus asks him a third time, but this time he meets Peter where he is. He uses the same word that Peter is using. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, do you really have even a friendship love for me? And this time Peter is hurt. It says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter is grieved because he remembers his own failure, how he denied the Lord three times. And you see what Jesus is doing here is really a wonderful thing. He's restoring Peter. And for this to make sense, you need to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Because condemnation says, you're not good enough. Look at you, you failed again. You're never going to get it right. You're the worst. That's the voice that Peter had been hearing. That's the voice that caused him to weep bitterly after his denial of Jesus. The voice that stirred him to be restless. The voice that stirred him to say, you know, don't stay here and wait. Go back to fishing. That's what you were good at. But conviction is different. You see, conviction calls us out of our shame to see our identity. Conviction says, I've called you a son. I've called you a daughter. So live that way. Conviction, it calls us back. Jesus is essentially restoring and recommissioning Peter. He's saying, don't run away from the call. Don't run back to fishing. Feed my sheep. Notice the order here too. It's love, then service. 
Sometimes we hear condemnation and we sit in shame because we think that we need to do more. Man, I just need to read my Bible more. I need to serve at church more. I should show up earlier. I need to help out more. My quiet time's not great. I need to make sure I help that little old lady across the street. You know, I should probably adopt a kid from China. Like we start thinking, if I do all these things, then God will love me. And that's backwards, right? It isn't in our doing. It's in our loving that Christ is honored. He turns duty into delight. We love the Lord, so we want to serve him. I mean, do, do you get that this evening? Do you get that? That God wants us to be doers, yes, to feed his sheep, but he wants us to be before we do. Love first. See the restoration of Peter. He calls you from shame. He calls you to see this. Again, think of these four G's. He is great. So you don't have to be in control. He is glorious. So you don't have to fear others. He is good. So you don't have to look elsewhere. And he is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourselves. Look back to see Jesus' words to Peter. Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So third, we see that Jesus, he calls us to follow him. He calls us to follow him. Jesus calls Peter to count the cost and follow him. There is no sugarcoating it here. Jesus is telling Peter that following him is going to make him a martyr. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Legend says that when Peter was crucified, he felt so unworthy to die like his savior that he said, "I I can't crucify me upside down. Now, I don't know if that's true, But what I do know is that from this moment, Peter fearlessly followed his master and sought to lead the church faithfully. Because we kind of just flip over and we see just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 3, we see this incredible interaction where Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin and he's fearless, ready to give his life up for the Lord. Peter heard the call to commit his life to Jesus and what he knew was that was a life in and for the glory of his bride, the church. Peter's role was to give his life to Christ's church. I think sometimes we think a life of following Jesus means a life of piety. Maybe we have some kind of romantic view of going overseas to an unreached place and dying alone in a hut. That may well be true. But following Jesus always, 100% of the time, means a commitment to his bride. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Christ. Every single one of those statements where Jesus says, do you love me, is followed with, feed my sheep. He's commissioning Peter, and he commissions us too, to his bride. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Christ, because Jesus Christ is not a single person in the sense that he comes to us without other attachment, right? He is a married person. He comes to us with a bride whom he loves and to whom he sacrificed himself for. To be in relationship to Christ while ignoring or even despising his bride is no more acceptable than such behavior would be in a human context. For example, you come to me afterwards and you're like, Billy, man, thanks for coming down to Wilmington. Really appreciate you being here. Really enjoyed having you. Your wife's kind of the worst. Didn't really like her. She smells weird. She was singing off key. You know, if you said that to me, I'm probably not going to like you, right? I'm probably not going to want to hang out with you. I'm probably going to be like, hey, we're done now. You're rude. I should pray for you because I want to punch you. So why do we do that to Jesus? 
because it's exactly what we do when we despise and disdain the bride. Genuine conversion means not only turning to and accepting Christ, it also means turning to and accepting his bride, the church. Jesus' love for his church remains undiminished, even though the church can be torn, broken, dirty in places, and generally malnourished and diseased. The church is still his bride. It's the people for whom he died and who are therefore the burden of his concern. So he speaks his word today to those who will hear it. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Man, I'll I'll just say this. If you think it's just, if you think Christianity is, it's just me and Jesus, you're being disobedient. You are. And you're not a follower of Jesus. You're you're not at least following what he teaches. One of my least favorite things in the world is the old adage of standing in a garage doesn't make me a car any more than going to church makes me a Christian. I get it. They're trying to equate that going to church, attending a church, sitting in a pew, sitting in a chair doesn't make you a Christian. And that's true. However, it's what a lot of people will say to say, you know what, I don't need to go to a church. You know, I I watch a sermon online. I occasionally read my Bible, but I have no relationship in the church. And what I would say to you, if that's you, is that you are robbing yourself of joy. You're robbing yourself of joy because Christ calls you to gospel community. As recipients of God's mercy, we remind one another of the grace found in Jesus Christ. We walk arm in arm to Jesus for healing and we feast together on the good food of the word of God. The the thing is, we need each other because we're just like Peter. We're so prone to wonder. We're so prone to say, man, I failed again. I'm the worst. Things aren't going well. I don't like how everything's happening. And we try to go and wonder. But when we walk arm in arm with one another, that's when we have someone pulling us back, reminding us to look to the shore and see the one who gave it all for us. We call one another back to the gospel. No matter what our situation in life, Christ's call to us is to follow him. He says, follow me. And below the surface of these words is something very beautiful and meaningful for Peter. Jesus' first command to Peter years before this, when he too was fishing, was this, follow me. Peter was younger then. He knew little of what would be involved. Man, but he followed. And now that command, it comes again. Follow me and how those words have been deepened by the years for Peter. Peter had been in Gethsemane. He had seen Jesus sweat blood, y'all. He had witnessed the sufferings of Christ at Golgotha. He had denied Christ. And he had also learned the necessity of following Jesus. What a depth of meaning the words follow me now carries. And that gracious command, it rings out to all of us as well. Follow me. If you're, a new, if you're a new Christian, this is Christ's abiding command. And you're asked to respond at your own level of understanding. If you've been a Christian for a long time, right? if you've been through the wars, it's still the same. Maybe it's more complex, but it's just as simple. Follow me. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Follow me. Think back to that scene. Jesus is on the shore with his disciples. Think of the graciousness of that communion with Jesus. These are ordinary men, right? Sometimes we read scripture and we almost kind of put these people up on a pedestal and think that they're just unlike us in every way. No, these are just normal guys. These are normal dudes. There are public failures like Peter. There are known doubters like Thomas. 
There are loyal and faithful souls like Nathaniel. There are men with bad tempers like the sons of Zebedee. And then there are two others who don't even rate it having their names mentioned. They're just background folks like the two other disciples. And to that deeply human company, Jesus opens the riches of his friendship and he opens it to us. Imagine yourself standing on the shore with Christ there and the sea of eternity stretching on a shimmering backdrop in Christ. He looks at you with knowing eyes and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Without comparing yourself to anyone else, do you really love me? Do you have an affection for me? See, we must love him above and beyond anything or anyone else. So do you love him? Do you? We must be absolutely honest about the level of our love. And second, we need to spend time with him. Because the more time we spend with him, the more we will love him. So how much time have you guys spent? How much time have I spent? Have we all spent with him in the last month? Right, if I'm thinking about my marriage and I'm thinking, okay, things aren't going great. We've been fighting a lot. I feel really distant from her. I, I, I want to work on this. I can go read a bunch of books about marriage. I can go to some conferences on marriage. I can listen to some sermons on marriage. I could download a few podcasts. Or I could just go and sit down in front of my wife and spend time with her and say, hey, what's going on? I think so often we make it so complicated. Man, just open your word and feast. Sit down and pray and hear from the Father. He loves you. He longs to be with you. Spend time with him. We spend time with those that we love, y'all. We just do. Jesus, he's better. He is. He's better than our best effort as he frees us from shame and he calls us to follow him. Consider again the gospel. Right? We, we hear this over and over, right? If you've been coming, I'm sure, to this church, you've heard the gospel at least a billion times. And you're going to hear it again because we've got one song and it's a really good song and we're going to sing it for all eternity. That Jesus, he went to Calvary knowing that we would fail, that we'd stumble, that we like Peter would run to lesser things. And yet he loved us, that Christ walked among us, God become man, he was born to a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, something that none of us can do, demonstrated for us what true humanity should look like, what compassion embodied actually is, and then he died for us. He was crucified for us, taking on our shame, our failure, our brokenness. And he did all of this, burying it and rising from the grave, offering to us newness of life eternity and joy forevermore by whose strength and power his not ours why because he is better he is better than our best effort he always pursues us he does maybe this evening you would say look i've never believed this jesus stuff but i want to man i would petition you respond to him maybe you own that most of your life you've looked at your own best effort and not Jesus. Maybe you've even thought that you were a Christian, that you were saved because you're a good person, right? You do the right things. But this evening, your goodness is compared with Jesus, and you are found wanting. Maybe he's stirring you, compelling you, calling you to follow. Or maybe you know Jesus, but you look at your life and you see the areas, big or small, where you've at times tried to muscle through by your own effort, or you've run to lesser things in shame. Maybe you've denied the importance of the church in your life and, and following Jesus. This evening, I would say repent and come and receive his hospitality. 
If you want to push against shame, come to the feet of Jesus. This evening, come to Jesus. He calls you out of the lies of condemnation to see that he is better. He calls you away from shame and he calls you to follow him. Would you pray with me?